Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Saving Dad podcast. Thank you ever so much for tuning in when you could have easily have chosen Barack Obama or someone equally as famous. And I thought it would be a nice way to start by reading you the prologue and the first chapter of my book, Saving Dad. Okay. I was three years old when I first witnessed the devastating effects of depression. On a winter's morning in 1975, as I pedalled my beloved plastic tricycle into the kitchen, I saw my dad sobbing in mum's arms. Whilst being cradled, he was repeating the words, I can't, I can't. Although at the time I was too young to understand, the scene I witnessed was Dad's first battle with bipolar disorder. Over the years, this mental illness has caused him to cycle between exhilarating highs and the depths of despair. Until recently, this book didn't have an ending. Since this is the true story of my life, I had to be patient enough for it to write its own. Recently, it did just that. Chapter 1 Two years before I was born, Mum and Dad moved from the southeast of England, where they had lived all of their lives, to the northwest. Mum was pregnant with my older brother Stuart, getting prepared for the arrival of her first child. Dad was also getting prepared, but in a slightly different way. He'd secured an exciting new job with the local water authority. Only he hadn't told Mum about it. And local, as it turned out, wasn't very local. Approximately 220 miles separate Surrey and the Wirral Peninsula, a one-way journey that Dad and a shell-shocked Mum made in a bright orange Volvo estate with a screaming newborn baby. Like most things in life, Mum took it in her stride and put complete faith in Dad's judgement, trusting that he knew exactly what he was doing. Two and a half relatively uneventful years later, in September 1972, I was born. This time there would be no new job and no return journey to the southeast of England. All was quiet. The silence was soon broken by the sound of falling bricks. Mum returned from strolling me around the neighbourhood to the sound of the wall between the kitchen and dining room crashing to the floor. Either Dad hadn't wanted to give her the opportunity to oppose his new idea for an extended kitchen diner, or once again he had forgotten to tell her of his new plans. To be fair to him, Dad made an exceptional job of the new and large space. To Mum, it didn't immediately look as though it would turn out this way when she saw a lorry unload half an ash tree, complete with bark, onto the drive. But, once Dad had kitted out the garage with an industrial bandsaw, jigsaw, radial arm saw, lathe, router and sanding plate, without telling the neighbours, he quite brilliantly transformed the former piece of woodland into a bespoke, handmade kitchen. As well as being adept at knocking down walls, as a chartered civil engineer, he was well qualified to build them. So build them he did, but not before a 12-hour day at the office. When he arrived home, he would swap his suit for a pair of jeans, then start work on the house. I remember how happy he looked, digging the foundations for the extension by floodlight, long after the sun had gone down. 
From their newly constructed bedroom balcony, Mum and Dad had a lovely clear view of the Deastery and North Wales. Perhaps it was the sight of the boat sailing by that inspired Dad to buy his first yacht. Evidently, he didn't want the boat builder to have all the fun. So, rather than buy one that he could put straight onto the water, he bought a 22-foot long fibreglass kit. Now that the ash tree had vacated the drive, there was room for a makeshift boatyard. So over the next few months, when Dad got home from a day's work, rather than build a house extension, he built a boat. To me, all of this seemed perfectly normal, establishing my belief that Dad could achieve absolutely anything. Like with all of his projects, he kitted out the boat to an exceptionally high standard, and once she was ready, we set sail. Well, I say sail. The boat's first voyage was a two-week holiday in northern Spain, which began on the road. Out came the trusty Volvo estate, a blue one by now, to trail the newly built vessel to the Costa Brava and back, a total of 2,200 miles. To Dad, this was just another adventure, complete with new boat, wife and two young children. What could possibly go wrong? He'd already driven the 270 miles down to the south coast, crossed the English Channel from Portsmouth to Cherbourg, then driven another few hundred miles through France when he fell asleep at the wheel. It wasn't until we saw the headlights of the juggernaut coming directly for us that Dad woke up and returned us to the right side of the road. Disaster averted. So we took this as a sign to stop over for the night, so pulled over into a lay-by. The beauty of training a boat is that you have ready-made beds wherever and whenever you need them. By early daylight, we were back on the road and soon engrossed in a game of I spy. When Mum glanced into the passenger wing mirror, she spied W for wobbling wheel. The nuts which secured one of the wheels to the trailer had worked themselves loose and the wheel was coming off its axle. Dad managed to navigate us to the hard shoulder where we came to a stop before the wheel had chance to break free. We quickly jumped out of the car to see how close we had come to another potential accident. What an adventure, ten-year-old me thought. The wobbling action had caused the wheel's bolt holes to wear, so now the nuts wouldn't fully tighten. We had no spares and another 600 miles to go before we reached the harbour. I was in awe as I watched Dad ingeniously turn the nuts around through 180 degrees so that their natural shape trapped the wheel in place nice and securely on the axle. The holiday passed without further incident and the whole experience reinforced my belief that wherever there was a problem, Dad knew how to fix it. Like many father-son relationships, Dad was my idol and I wanted to be just like him. Through my parents' impetuous move to the northwest, I was presented with the relatively rare opportunity to attend grammar school. Where I grew up on the Wirral Peninsula, there are four grammar schools within close proximity. Unfortunately for me, they didn't simply hand out places for an opportunity like that. Instead, you needed to pass the 11 plus entrance exam. Up until this point in my life, I can safely say that my experience of anxiety was limited to whether or not Liverpool were going to win the Football League trophy. Thanks to Ian Rush and King Kenny Dalgleish, I rarely needed to worry about that. Watching those 11 men in red win title after title filled me with great excitement, whilst the 11 plus gave me palpitations of a different kind. 
Even from seven or eight years old, I can remember how this exam hovered on the horizon of my future. My older brother had already successfully navigated the hurdle to grammar school, heaping further pressure on me to do the same. The cruel thing about the 11 plus was that you didn't know when you were going to sit the exam. It would be sprung upon you as a surprise on what would otherwise be a regular school day. The anticipation of the impending exam took its toll as I contracted glandular fever. I don't remember being a practising romantic at the age of 11, but this diagnosis of the kissing disease suggested otherwise. For a few weeks I was listless and struggled to get out of bed, which meant missing school. It also meant missing the 11+. plus. I remember my friend Neil coming to the front door one day to say that they'd sat the exam. I immediately felt a sense of dread. I'd missed it. What on earth would happen now? I would take the exam on my own in the headmistress's office, that's what. Looking back on it now, I believe that the diagnosis of glandular fever was wrong, and instead it was stress, brought on by the impending exam. My confidence in this misdiagnosis is inspired by what would follow in the years to come, beginning with my first year university exams. I had passed the dreaded 11+, plus, navigated my way through GCSEs and A-levels, then went on to study business at the University of Sheffield. If I was going to successfully follow Dad into a managerial position, I was certain that a degree in business studies would be the path to get me there. At the time, I had no bigger plans for my life than that. Business studies, management, suit. I found the first year of university relatively easy, especially compared to my Russian maths and economics A-levels. Easy that was, until exam time. To revise for the first year exams, laden with textbooks, I returned home to the Wirral by train. Mum greeted me at the station, taking me the remainder of the way home by car. During the journey, she said, When we get home, ignore what Dad says. He's saying some funny things at the moment. I wasn't sure what she meant, but I remember being worried and confused by her words. Up until this point, we hadn't been an emotionally demonstrative family. We didn't say I love you or exchange much physical contact. It's fair to say that we were a stoic family. If I was a little worried during the car journey, upon arriving home, I was petrified. Looking like a shadow of the man I'd idolised all my life, Dad fell into my arms. Something was terribly wrong. The man who always knew the answers to my questions, who could get us out of any jam, who could build a kitchen from half an ash tree and a boat from a fiberglass kit, was sobbing in my arms. It was 1992, I was 19 years old, and in a split second, my life had just pivoted. The scene I witnessed as a three-year-old was replaying itself. But this time, rather than mum, it was me who was doing the cradling. Bipolar disorder expresses itself in cycles. And having ridden a wave of highs for a number of years, Dad was now experiencing a severe downturn and was in the grips of depression. Things which before were easy and taken for granted were now extraordinarily difficult for him like getting out of bed in the morning, like showering and shaving, like getting dressed. With my bedroom located next to the bathroom, 
and my pillow positioned adjacent to the dividing wall between the two rooms, I heard Dad cry the same words that I'd heard as a toddler. I can't. I can't. This became a daily routine. I would see Mum struggle to get Dad up, showered and shaved. Tasks he would regularly abandon partway through and return to the psychological safety of his bed. By the time I returned home to revise for my exams, Mum had already taken a substantial amount of time off work to care for Dad. With me now back for a few weeks, she rightly took the opportunity to return to work, knowing that Dad wouldn't be home alone. I wasn't at all prepared for how hard this would turn out to be. At the dining room table, as I pored over my textbooks, Dad stood over my shoulder, feigning interest in what I was studying. For a family which didn't usually have much physical contact, almost hourly, Dad would stand behind me and put his hand on my shoulder, craving human connection. I didn't know how to behave or what to say, so I buried my head in my books. This routine continued for a few weeks, until I returned to university. In the days leading up to the exam, I began to feel exhausted, unable to concentrate upon my studies. It resembled how I'd felt in the run-up to the 11-plus exam. Surely I couldn't have glandular fever again, could I? Sufficiently concerned about my deteriorating health, I decided to pay a visit to my personal tutor, who was also my lecturer for financial accounting. When I arrived, the door to her office was already open, so I popped my head in to ask whether she had a moment to discuss how I was feeling. She said that she had a few minutes before heading to her next lecture, so in I went, leaving the door open behind me. It would only be a quick chat, I thought. How can I help? she inquired. I'm exhausted, I replied. Not another one, she said. Clearly, I wasn't the first student to report that they were struggling with their exam preparations. Is there anything in particular you're having difficulty with, she asked. Breathing more rapidly, my emotions began to rise. I struggled to get the words out. I didn't know what to say. How could I? I didn't even know what was happening. On my first attempt, I got only part way through my sentence. My dad's had a nervous... I could taste the salt of my tears as they rolled down my cheeks and into my mouth. I tried again, and this time just about managed to complete the sentence. My dad's had a nervous breakdown, I cried. She could immediately see that this was more than just exam stress, and rushed to close the door to give us some privacy. I remember so clearly the activist closing the door, and I've come to understand why I paid such significance to it. If she's closed the door... This must be serious. I went on to describe in detail the events of the previous few weeks, how Dad was like a different person and how it was taking a toll on me. My story must have taken its toll on her too, as I saw tears well up in her eyes. I took this as another signal that my situation was serious, so now I felt scared. I'd gone into her office hoping for a quick solution, like Dad used to give me whenever though I had a problem but my childhood superhero was out of superpower. Instead, my personal tutor gave me a couple of options. I could delay taking the exams until after the summer. There'd be no shame in that, she said, given what I'd been through. Or I could take them regardless and hope for the best. Either way, she suggested that I down tools immediately, not do any more revision, and instead get some much-needed rest. I figured that going through the entire summer with the prospect of exams hanging over my head would make me feel even worse, so I told her that I'd go ahead and take the exams as planned, but do as she suggested and stop revising. This felt really weird, 
I'd always taken my exams seriously and spent a lot of time revising for my GCSEs and A-levels. But here I was, with my first year university exams just around the corner. Instead of having my head buried in my books, I buried myself under the covers, got up late, watched movies in my dressing gown and went for gentle strolls through the Peak District. Taking my cue from what I'd learnt at home, I kept my feelings to myself, choosing not to share my struggles with my housemates. It must have looked so strange to them, either like I was feeling super confident or that I didn't care. In those days, you went in person to collect your exam results. Although I sat all of my exams that summer, I can recall collecting the results for only one of them, financial accounting. As I approached my personal tutor nervously, she held out her hand with a folded piece of paper and said to me, this is the most remarkable result I have ever seen. I unfolded the paper to discover that I had achieved a first. By the time I returned home from university that summer, Dad had worked in the water industry for 32 years, ever since he'd joined as an apprentice at 18. Although he was still struggling badly with his depression, he wanted to try to progress back to work. Dad and I met with his boss in the local pub to talk through some potential options. He agreed that Dad could try to come into the office one day a week to see whether he could cope with a gentle introduction. Even this proved too much. So aged just 50, Dad retired through ill health. Mum, however, was still working. Now that I was home for the summer, once again I picked up the baton to care for Dad while she was at work. One of the many things that depression steals from you is the art of conversation. So when I drove Dad to his psychiatrist appointment, the journey was pretty quiet. That wasn't until he revealed. You know, this reminds me of when I was 19, the same age as you are now. Really? How so? I asked. I used to drive my dad, your granddad, to his appointments, he replied. I was intrigued. Appointments for what? I inquired. I used to drive him to have ECT, he said. I'd never heard of it. ECT? What's that? I asked. I wouldn't have to wait long to find out. Dad and I sat down in the psychiatrist's office and listened to him explain that, already having been prescribed a long list of antidepressants and mood stabilizers without success, Dad was suffering from drug-resistant depression. The only other option available to him was electroconvulsive therapy. Later, Dad told me that in 1961, when he'd taken his own father for the same treatment, he would watch him receive an electric shock to his brain without anaesthetic in an attempt to relieve him of his depressive symptoms. Up to 15 mental health patients would be lined up at a time and, because there were no curtains between the beds, Dad would be able to see each of them, in turn be shocked into an epileptic seizure. Not easy viewing for anyone, never mind a 19-year-old son. Now, Dad was being told he would need to undergo the same treatment he watched his father receive 30 years earlier. By 1992, although still described by some as barbaric, the procedure was at least somewhat more refined than it was when Dad had watched his father get treatment. With apparently no alternative, Dad agreed to a course of 12 treatments, two per week over the following six weeks. In a private room, the anaesthetist administered a muscle relaxant, then a general anaesthetic, before a doctor placed electrodes on his two frontal lobes and administered an electric shock to his brain. After four treatments, Mum and I could see glimpses of Dad's personality. Then, after four more, 
there was a noticeable improvement in his mood. After the final four treatments, we were delighted to have Dad back to what appeared to be his normal self. I too was feeling much better, so travelled back to Sheffield to begin my second year at university. Now that Dad was medically retired, 15 years before he had planned to finish work, he needed to create a new normal. Given the events of the past, it perhaps shouldn't have come as a surprise to me to learn, during a telephone conversation with Mum, that Dad's idea of a new normal involved selling the family home and moving 270 miles to the south coast of England. As soon as they bought the house, Dad once again employed his civil engineering skills and began plans to dramatically extend it. Stuart and I had both left home, so naturally he and Mum were going to need a seven-bedroom detached house to themselves. By the time I visited them for their Christmas holidays, planning permission for the large extension had been granted and Dad was already wearing his hard hat. Although this project was considerably larger and more complex than the previous one he'd undertaken, Dad wasn't phased one bit. Once again I watched him whilst he was in his element, excavating the trenches with a mini-digger before a cement truck arrived to dispense the concrete into his newly dug foundations. Whilst Dad was enjoying himself outside in the mud, Mum was trying to retain a sense of normality inside the house. The distinction between the inside and the outside wasn't all that obvious, because Dad had already removed the entire back of the house, leaving it exposed to the winter elements, except for a large polythene sheet. In addition to having no back wall, there was no hot water for washing or gas for cooking. But, just like when Dad was ill, I heard no complaints from Mum. Whilst Dad worked tirelessly outside in the trenches, she battled on in the kitchen, heating saucepans of water for washing, then served up breakfast, lunch and dinner from a gas camping stove, whilst wearing a woolly hat and gloves. By early summer, gloves were no longer required for cooking nor construction, as the building work neared its conclusion. After nine months of living in a state of chaos, things were finally beginning to settle down. Or so I thought. Well, I hope that's whet your appetite for what's been a roller coaster of a journey. If you'd like to read my book, then it's available on my own website or on Amazon, both in paperback and in Kindle form.